0: Titus 2, starting at verse 11. This is God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of uh, of the glory, Glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to provide for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. If um, you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that as a church, we've been going through the New Testament book called Titus. Um, It's actually a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to um, a younger worker, a younger leader called Titus. And Titus was uh, leading and strengthening a number of churches on the island of Crete, the Mediterranean island called Crete. And so that's what we're looking at. And actually, this is about halfway through. Um, But the cool thing is, actually, uh, We'll see this as we go through. The little section we've just read is kind of like a summary of where we're at so far and what has been covered in the letter. So even if this is your first time at Foundation and you haven't heard of anything to do with Titus or anything I've been wittering on about for the last few weeks, you've come at the right time because we'll we'll, we'll overview a few bits and pieces and um, hopefully then you'll be well placed when you come back next week. What we're going to be looking at this morning um, is this idea, this uh, theme that comes out of these verses called... Uh, the grace of God, and, and particularly it's the appearing of the grace of God. And so what we'll look at uh, under three headings, the first one is we'll examine the past appearance of the grace of God, then we'll look at the present power of the grace of God, and finally the future hope of the grace of God. Past appearance, present hope, sorry, present power, future hope. So, first of all, the past appearance of the grace of God. The churches that Paul um, is writing about and writing to have started so well. They've heard the good news of Jesus, they've believed it for themselves, they've... they've, they've Um, become transformed people. That's what happens when you believe in Jesus. And and they've gathered together in little communities, probably similar size to this, in one another's homes. And they're they're worshipping Jesus. And that's awesome. They started well. um, But what we've seen so far in this series is that they are incomplete. They're not the finished article yet. And so Paul addresses the the, the critical issues that that he sees they need in order to become solid, healthy um, churches that are going to stand the test of time. And so he said, you know what, first of all, you need elders, you need good, uh, spirit-filled uh, men who are going to lead the church well. And so we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and then he dealt with this issue of, of fake teaching, that's doing the rounds. It's not the gospel, it's not the good news, it sounds like it on the surface, but it's destructive, and it's been pulling apart households and churches and doing real damage. And then last week we saw how um, then Paul says we should relate to one another in church, our relationships with each other. So let's look then specifically at where we're at today. He says in verse 11, you can see it on your sheet, for the grace of God has appeared. All right, past appearance, it has appeared. Um, we, We saw at the beginning of the letter that this was something that was promised. Uh, before the foundations of the earth, it was revealed through uh, Jesus and through his apostles, their preaching. It has appeared. It is something that has uh, come up in the past. Paul and, and others have seen it. But as you can see in verse 11, it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. God's grace is saving grace, it is saving power, it has potency. Uh, grace, according to Paul here, is not just a, an idea that, that we understand with our minds and something that we agree to uh, in principle. Grace, if we really understand it, as he's saying here, it revolutionizes us. It utterly shapes us. It transforms us. That's what grace does if you really understand it. Specifically then, what does that grace look like? How does it come to us? Well, he says down in verse 14 we've got Jesus Christ that's how God's grace has come to us that's how it appeared in the past Jesus Christ who gave himself for us Jesus Christ he came from God it's part of the plan remember promised from before the ages began and in Jesus Christ God gave himself to us that's what the grace of God is God gave himself. It means he did for you what you could not do for yourself. That's what grace is. It, is. it is one directional favor of God from him to you. It is not something that you and I deserve because of our good behavior, living a right life. It is not something that we merit because we're nice people or we've done good works. God's grace came to you because he knew you needed saving. And he came on his own initiative. He came at his own great cost because he's the God that saves. This is grace with saving power. And then Paul, uh, after he shows the shape of, of grace coming to us in Jesus, he says, look, there, Jesus and the grace of God, there's two uh, vivid descriptions of, of what that grace does, how it works for you and I. We see this in verse 14. Jesus Christ, we read, gave himself for us. We've seen that. That's how God's grace came to us. And he's done it's done two things. First of all, it says it's redeemed us from lawlessness. Redeem means to, to buy you back. It's, it's the language of slavery, you know. Maybe not something that we are especially familiar with, although slavery does exist today. We know that through our partnership with IJM. Um, but in that context, in the Greco-Roman context, slavery was part of an accepted part of ordinary, everyday society. And to be a slave meant that you were owned by someone. It, it meant that you were stuck as someone's possession. You were enslaved. You, you cannot just simply choose to free yourself. But, and here's the but, every slave knew or hoped they knew that it was possible to be purchased by someone else. A wealthy friend, maybe the family managed to scrape together enough money to buy you back, to to buy you for freedom. Paul says this is what Jesus has done for you. He has redeemed you, he has purchased you, he has bought you back because of God's love, because of his grace, he has redeemed you. He, he paid the price for you from his own pocket. He has purchased you for himself, Paul says. That is how grace works through Jesus. He's redeemed you. What have they been redeemed from? What have they been saved from, so to speak? Well, it says there, doesn't it? Um, he redeemed us from all lawlessness, all forms of lawlessness. Um, if you've been, again, listening, we've been building up a picture of the society that Paul has been addressing on Crete. And we've seen that it's not been a great place to live, quite honestly. It's been a, uh, we've seen it's pretty much an unruly place uh, to live. The Cretans, the people of Crete, have a reputation across the Greek-speaking world of being liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's what a poet from Crete said of his own people. They, they were people who don't believe in absolute truth. They think truth is something that you can use to your own advantage, to get one up over someone else. It's all about using and abusing one another. If I can get what I want by using you, I'll do that. It seemed to be what the society in Crete was like. And we've seen over the last few weeks that uh, alcohol misuse was a big problem. It comes up time and again through the letter substance abuse and all the trouble that comes from it all of this added together the people of Crete are generally exposed to this understanding that you are to put yourself first in life Um, and yet as we've been seeing that does not create harmonious wonderful society that creates a mess because everyone's out to get their own thing to climb the ladder it's chaotic it's rebellious but when the gospel came, the good news came to Crete. The gospel said, that's not what you were created for. Um, you're, you're made for more than this, this kind of living. That's, that's not for you. Yes, your life is a mess, but then grace appeared and, and redeemed you from yourselves. That's what Jesus has come to do, to do. That's what the gospel said to the people of Crete. Your situation, your mess, all that stuff, all your background. The gospel gives you new life. Jesus has come to give you new life. He's come to buy you back. That's what he was buying you from. So grace works by redeeming, but also we see a second thing it does in verse 14. Grace works by purifying. Purify for himself a people for his own possession. Jesus wants to make you clean. That's what purifying is. He wants to hose you down and make you sparkling new. A few days ago, the bloke who lives in the house next to us was jet washing the pathway that leads up to his house. And he was at it for ages, hours. And evidently he'd done a good job because the concrete was pretty shabby before and it's come up, not bad, it's come up quite white. But He cleaned his pathway, but all of the stuff that had come off of his pathway ended up on my pathway. It just shot it straight across. And so now we're walking through all of the grit and the dirt and the impurity. He did try and sort of sweep it away, but actually just made it worse. But anyway, grace, when it comes to you, removes this ingrained dirt and this grime, the filth that clings to you and I. That's what grace does. That's what Jesus does for you. He not only redeems, but he purifies. uh, Everything that clings to you, guilt, shame, the grip of your past experiences, whatever they may be, sins that you have done, sins that have been done against you, all that can be tackled, taken down, washed away by Jesus. That's grace. And you will come up shining new. When he works his grace into your hearts, purified, beautiful, sparkling, spotless, that's what happens when grace comes to you. So we've seen the past appearance of the grace of God came in Jesus Christ to redeem and to purify that's where it all begins, by the way. If you're investigating the Christian faith or, or maybe you, you're, you're just sort of on the fringes, you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, this is where it all begins. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is the basic basis of Christianity. And, and becoming a Christian, um, effectively, is when you see the grace of God and, and, and you personalize it you accept it you you receive it that's what faith is it's receiving with the empty hands of trust trusting that, that, that Jesus has come for you and what he did to save you by going to the cross and and dying and raising on the third day and ascending We'll see that later faith is saying his grace appeared for me Christ came for me he, he came to redeem me and purify me and now because of that I'm free I'm his I'm purified I'm beautiful in the sight of God that's what grace does is it yours? Um, I wonder do you have that grace? can you say of yourself? Uh, because you simply need to hold out the empty hands of faith and trust and, and, and it's yours before we move on to the next point, I just want to highlight a little phrase in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for who? All people. Having just discussed the high and low, the old and the young, the male and female, he's saying all types of people can receive this offer of grace. Not just religious types, by the way. You might not class yourself as a religious type. Good, because grace is available to you. And if you think you are a religious type, that's fine. You maybe come from a religious family, that's okay. Grace is available for you too. If you're an older man, grace is available for you. If you're a younger man, grace is available for you. If you're an older woman or a younger woman, grace is available for you. If you're high in society, if you're low in society, grace is available for you. Grace makes no distinction, it's for all people. past appearance of the grace of God. Let's move on then. Number two, the present power of the grace of God. This is all very well. This is so helpful, so encouraging when we look back and we see how God's grace has come to us in Jesus. Amazing. Praise God. But, but, but there is a present effect, right? We, we believe on that. We trust that. We receive that. But it does something now. And we've been seeing from the beginning of this letter, uh, Paul's main theme here is get the truth straight, about Jesus, but but allow the truth to shape you. You know, It'll get into you. It'll change you and make you different, make you new, make you sparkling. That will have an impact on the way you live your life and, and what you do with yourself from day to day. There's power. There's present power. What is that? Well, How does that look? In verse 12, look, the grace of God has appeared in the past, but then it's training us. It's an active, ongoing thing. It's training us. Some people say it's like entering the school of grace. Once you have seen that and you've received that and you've trusted and you've you know, you, you benefited from grace, then you enter the school. Then you learn how to live that out, how to walk that out for the rest of your life. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're in the school of grace. And it teaches us two things, two simple things in the school of grace. It teaches us to say no to some things and it teaches us to say yes to other things. Let's examine that. It t- teaches us to say no, it says there in verse 12, uh, to, otherwise to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what we're saying no to. Uh, a few weeks ago we saw um, that the fake teachers doing the rounds among all the little house churches in Crete were basically saying, it seemed to be, they were saying to the believers in Jesus, you can have your cake and eat it. Um, You you, you can can be religious, you can claim the blessing of God, and you can live as you please. Have both. That's the the fake teaching that was destroying the church, and Paul was setting himself against that. They were saying you can be a believer on Sunday if it suits you, and then you can live like everyone else for the rest of the week. But Paul says here adamantly, no. 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 Jesus Christ compels us to give up living life by the world's standards. And when we saw a few weeks ago, we we called that the radical ordinary. Living in ordinary relationships with one another, allowing grace to to shine out of those relationships. But it's so radical because the world doesn't have that. You can listen online, by the way, or or look on YouTube and and catch up if if you're not familiar with with what I'm saying. The, The radical ordinary. The Bible presents this stark contrast time and again, you see, between the kingdom of Jesus on the one hand and the kingdom of the world on the other. And they're in opposition. They're at war. They're radically different. And Paul is saying when you're in the school of grace, in many cases, you say no to the ways of ungodliness and worldly passions that the world is pushing on you teaches us to say no. But also teaches us to say yes. The present power of the grace of God teaches us to say yes. Living, it says there in verse 12, self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, in the here and now. Self-controlled means you have a grip on yourself. You're not just getting buffeted around like a little boat on on a stormy lake. You have self-control. In the school of grace, you're taught to live upright, that is to live justly, to be a person of integrity, honesty, seeking justice. That's how you live when you're in the school of grace. And you're to live godly lives. God-glorifying, Christ-honoring, grace-saturated lives. A life like that will stick out like a sore thumb in your place of work, in your family, whatever circles you move in. no to some things, yes, in the, in, in the, in the school of grace, this present power will give you uh, impact to flow against the tide of this world. What is, though, the, the point of all this? What's the point of entering into the school of grace? Why, why do we have to focus on the present power of the grace of God now well it says in in verse 14 we've sort of examined this already Jesus Christ we've seen this gave himself for us to redeem and to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works this is the product of the school of grace this is what happens when you get in training you will become zealous for good works he's saying here that Jesus Christ is making creating gathering a group of people even right now right now to serve him, to enjoy him, to represent him. And they are to be zealous for good works, passionate for good works, inspired for good works. They're not to be famous for being really good at law-keeping. They're not to become renowned for being nitpicky, Or or looking down on other people or avoiding non-believers or acting like hypocrites. They're not to be zealous for any of those things. Paul says when you're in the school of grace, because of what Jesus has done, you'll be zealous for good works. You, You can see, can't you, how that past appearing of the grace of God leads to present power right now. What are good works? It doesn't say here, does it? It doesn't give us a specific list on what a good work is or is not. Um, we can say, uh, this is sort of a working, diagn- uh, working diagnosis, a working uh, definition. Uh, good work is any action, word, or deed that flows from a heart that is transformed by the grace of God for his glory. Say that again. A good work is any action, word, or deed that flows from our hearts, transformed by the grace of God for his glory. That means it's wide, right? Good works are wide. They're non-specific. It depends on you. What might be a good work for you? It's different for each of us. Depends on your opportunities. Depends on your gifting. Depends on your situation that you find yourself in. But anything that you do that points to God's grace and his glory and that flows from God's grace and his glory, that is a good work. That will adorn the gospel. That will make beautiful what is already beautiful, which is Jesus. And we saw in uh, our previous passage, verses uh, 1 through 10 in chapter 2, this looks like loving, this looks like serving, this looks like sacrificing for one another, this looks like kindness, generosity, opportunities to bless. Later on in chapter 3, verse 14, we'll see, a few weeks' time, uh, good works is about helping cases of urgent need, where we see the need greatest. That's where we put in our resources. That's where we love and serve and show the grace of God at work. And we do this in multiple ways at Foundation Church. As I've mentioned, we'll be spotlighting a few of the partner agencies that we have in, in order to help us as a little church fulfill our calling and, and do good works that adorn the gospel. So what about you? Are you, are you feeling right now like you're in the School of Grace? Do you, do you look like a student in the School of Grace? Maybe you've only been in the School of Grace for a year, and that's okay. That's cool. Maybe even just for a few weeks. Awesome. Uh, maybe you've been in the school of grace for a lot longer than that. Are there, are there things that you, uh, just even as you're listening to this and think about these verses, are there things that you need to say no to? Has, has some sort of ungodliness, whatever that looks like, some compromise started to creep in to your life? Have you maybe just become slightly more selfish? slightly less generous, slightly less open to one another. Maybe you'll become more concerned with yourself and less concerned with other people. Imagine for a second if uh, an invisible film crew turned up tomorrow, if you're at work or whatever you're doing, and followed you around. No one else can see them, of course. You know they're there. And there they are recording every word you say and every deed that you do. And after the week's up and you sit down with the video editor of this invisible hypothetical film crew and you play it back, what will you see? Uh, are, you, are you just behaving and speaking and acting the same as your colleagues at work who don't know Jesus? Will that, will that come up on the video of your life? Maybe, maybe, maybe it will encourage you and hearten you because you're living such a, uh, a distinctive life for Jesus. Maybe it will show you that there is some area in your life that you need to start saying no to again. Push it out. Kick it out. Or as you're listening to this, is there some area that you need to say yes to? Are you, are you zealous for good works? Am I zealous for good works, as we've been reading here? Or have have the worries of this current season and all the pressures and all the challenges to our ordinary lives, has that caused your passion levels to just simply dampen down a bit or maybe die down altogether? Do you need to receive the grace of God again? Do you need to turn the levels up a little more? Remember why you're here and what you're here for. Because if you do, then that's okay because power is available. We'll get there in a few minutes. So the present power of the grace of God, we've seen the past appearance of the grace of God, thirdly and finally, the future hope of the grace of God. I don't know if you picked it up as we read through. There's an appearing that's already happened. The grace of God has appeared, verse 11, in the past, but there's a second appearing as well. Verse 13. It says that we are waiting currently, you and I, The church and all creation are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. This is why we live as we do. This is why we live the radical ordinary. This is why we allow the truth to shape us. This is where it's heading. All of our good works are moving forward, pointing towards that final day. The blessed hope, it says, the the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ allow that to sink in for a moment i don't know if you're new to the christian faith or or maybe you've been traveling for a long time just be reminded the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ this is happening he's coming back right again uh, We've, we've seen it in the past. He's began something. We're seeing it in the present. It's being worked out, and yet we're progressing towards that day, uh, that moment, that, that, that turning of a new page when he appears. Let's, let's spend a few moments just thinking about that word appearing because it's quite important for our understanding of what Paul's saying here. Uh, the, the, the word appearing Here's a bit of Greek. If you like Greek, I don't. Uh, epiphania, Epiphania means appearing. That's where we get that word epiphany from. If you've maybe heard of an church, epiphany church or something like that, epiphania. And the word was familiar to those listening and those in the churches in those days because in Greek mythology, you know, the sort of belief system of the dominant world at that time, Greek mythology, the gods were said to have an appearing, an an epiphany. There was a moment in Greek mythology when each god, and there was loads of them gods and goddesses, would appear. And not just within Greek mythology, but even in, within imperial uh, Roman Empire. Uh, the emperor was often said to have an epiphany, an appearing. And what would happen, and, and where this idea and this theme came from, was that an exalted figure would appear in victory, uh, he would, would come to his people's aid. He would bring them uh, gifts. He would bring rewards of s- some sort of salvation, some sort of peace from their enemies. This is, this is all tied up in this word, epiphania, appearing. And Paul knows his audience. And so he borrows this concept from contemporary culture. Uh, but he redefines it, as he's been doing in this letter. Whereas the Greeks and the Romans, they understood the Epiphania as a, a human being who's done really well and is sort of elevated by you know, popular acclaim and popular applause and almost given divine status and almost worshipped in many cases. That's come from the bottom up. They've been exalted from below. But, but Paul is saying, with Jesus, it is different. He hasn't come from the bottom up. He's come from the, the top down. This is something he uh, got to at the start of the letter. Jesus has come from above. He is God, come down to us. He is God from outside to us, top down. Do you remember the story uh, of, of the ascension of Jesus? You can read it in Acts chapter 1 if you haven't read it before. Jesus died, rose again, spent 30, 40 or so days, maybe 50 days, whatever, with his disciples. And then he took them out of the city, and it says he ascended before them in his body, the physical Jesus, and up he went, right? He went up into the the air, and and a cloud hid him from their sight. And and the disciples who were with him, the apostles, were stood there looking up into the sky, and and an angel said to them, why, why are you standing looking up in the sky? This same Jesus, said the angel, who was taken up from you will come in the same way you saw him go. The moment that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father started the clock ticking because from that moment on, his people, his disciples, his church have been eagerly awaiting his appearing, his return. The man from heaven, and Paul says he, he is our hope. The future hope of the grace of God. He's, he's coming, folks. But what does he bring with him when he comes? What does, what does his coming achieve? His epiphany. He comes bearing gifts. He comes in victory. But it's far greater than any victory of any story within Greek mythology Far greater than any victory from some power hungry Roman emperor. In fact, the Bible sketches this stunning vision of the victory and the, the gifts that Jesus will come back bearing. Here's just a few. When the great glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ comes, the Bible says, All evil, all rebellion, All dark forces and powers and institutions will be thrown down and destroyed forever when Jesus comes again. The Bible tells us that all of creation is groaning. It is trapped. It has been bearing the weight of the human curse from the first days. And when Jesus comes again, that's all unleashed. It is set free. It is restored. It will be bursting with life like we have never seen. That's what happens when Jesus comes back. The Bible tells us that when he comes back, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. You've heard this one before. I love it. No more mourning. No more sorrow. No more crying. No more suffering. Not even death. That will be destroyed. When Jesus comes again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that our great God and saviour Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's happening. Paul even says that when Christ appears again, Colossians 3 verse 4, we will appear with him. The dead in Christ, the faithful, all those who die in Christ Jesus Will appear with him in victory. Salvation, perfection, the glory of God revealed to our eyes like never before. And it's happening. It's our hope. There's a beautiful scene, uh, if you're familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. the story is that the snow queen, the wicked snow queen, has, has placed all of Narnia under a curse, under a spell. And, and it's, she's placed Narnia into an eternal winter. Nothing grows, nothing flourishes. It's just freezing. That Effectively, all of creation is enslaved. But the Narnians have this hope. That one day, Aslan, the lion... The great king, he will appear and defeat the snow queen and undo the curse that she has placed this eternal winter. And the Narnians, to encourage one another, they had this this poem or this hymn that they would sing, reminding themselves that one day Aslan is coming back. And here's how it goes Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. When he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. Can you see what the grace of God does? How it all connects together, the past appearing, the present power, and the future hope. As we close out, let me, let's think with each other just in conclusion. What does that say, therefore, to your present fears? What does that say to your present fears? Challenges you are facing in your life. The King is coming. It says, I think, that our present fears are temporary. Temporary. Even if the worst should actually happen, let's be honest here, even if the worst should absolutely happen and we are faced with death or loss or suffering because Jesus is coming again, it is not final. It will not define you. When he bears his teeth, winter meets his death. What has got you anxious? in this season? What has you worried? Is it, is it COVID? Is it politics? Is it the culture wars? Is it social issues? Is it brokenness in society? Is it brokenness in yourself or in others that are in your life? Is that what occupies you? That's understandable. We live in the broken world. We face all these things together And yet grace has come to us in Jesus that affects the here and now, right? And how we organize and operate and how we assess. But yet we have this great hope that beyond this and through this, Jesus is coming. I love the words at the very end of the Bible. They're very easy to find. Go to the last page. Jesus says this to the church, surely I am coming soon. And they respond, amen, come, Lord Jesus.